Welcome to Talk Farm to Me. I'm your host, Farm Girl. This is the first episode in a deep dive series about the dairy industry and farming dairy. As the first episode, I wanted it to be a dairy 101 of sorts. And it is that. But I will tell you this. It is a much different Dairy 101 than I thought it was going to be. We can get into that a little bit later. To get us started on the right track, I want you to meet New York dairy farmer Rich Deary. He's been farming dairy his whole life. My parents bought the farm in 1944. They milked 10 cows and when they bought this farm they moved the 10 cows over here. There was room for, I think my dad said there was room for like 16 in the barn. And uh, after a few years, they started milking more cows. And gradually he changed to milking cows on both sides of the barn. That gave him room to milk 30. Then in 1960, I believe it was, we added on to the barn and made room for 15 heifers. Just a quick aside here, a heifer is a female cow. She's usually the daughter of one of the dairy cows, and she's kept on hand as a replacement cow in case one of the dairy cows becomes less productive. Typically, a heifer is bred and starts milking when she's around two years old. So that we had 30 cows in the main barn to milk, and then there was 15 heifers in the addition, and... In 1944, when he bought the place, was the house, the barn, I guess just the bare farm, and around 100 acres, and he bought it for $5,000. And he borrowed the money from my grandfather. My grandfather said, how are you ever going to pay that money back? He said, that $5,000, that's a lot of money. You know. $5,000 for a 100-acre farm in 1944. This purchase set in motion Rich Deary's entire life. Let's go back to the early days when Rich was just a little boy. They always say it's it's in your blood, and I guess there's something to that. You know, it's just, it's just you know, I always said I knew when I was six years old what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a farmer, you know, and it's just, you know, the tractors, the animals, it's just, it's just what you want to do. Because I know when I was... 11 years old, I was helping milk cows, you know, and doing whatever I could. I was probably around that age when I got put on a tractor to rake hay and bale hay and do tractor work. And, you know, it was just whatever you, whatever you could handle, that's what you did, you know. It's weekends and summer vacation when you weren't in school, you were here working. I mean, that's just, you didn't ask questions. Let's, why do I have to do that? You know, he just did it, you know. It was here to do and, you know, and that's what you wanted to do anyway, you know. I mean, I, I was much, much happier driving a tractor than I would be going swimming or something. Eventually, Rich took over more and more responsibilities on the farm and became pretty good at it. Like most farms back then, Deary's Dairy moved from generation to generation. From the time when I got out of high school was around the time that they quit doing milk cans and we had to put in a, a bulk tank to put the milk in. 
and November 1st was the last day they were going to take canned milk at the local creamery. And I remember, I don't know, probably about May or something like that, I said to my dad, you know, November 1st, I said, if we're going to, if you're going to do anything about putting a tank in, we need to build a milk house. We need to do a bunch of stuff to get this lined up. And I said to him, what's your plan? What are you going to do? You know, he looked at me and he said, that depends on what you're going to do. He says, you know, I'm 60 something, 62 or whatever he was. He said, I, you know, so I said, well, I'm going to be here. He says, all right, I guess we better get going and do this. So he said, you know, we got to get this thing straightened around. And it was just decided that half of the cows were mine and half of the cows were his. And we just came up with some figures and had a paper drawn up, took it to the lawyer and signed it. And that was it from there. Farm transitions are harder these days. Rich has encouraged his two boys, now grown men, to have jobs off the farm. Real jobs, he says, with benefits and pensions. He has seen changes in the business and knows it won't sustain them like it did his parents and his own family. Between myself and my wife and my parents, we were doing good. We were supporting both families. We were paying bills. We were buying equipment and everything, you know, from 1970, probably until nearly 2000. I mean, it was really, you know, we were doing well. We were, if you needed a piece of equipment, you traded the old one and bought a new one and needed a tractor or whatever. Like say we had 10 or 15 pretty good years I'd just like to mention to you quickly here that Rich wasn't doing this alone. His wife, Mary Ann, farmed dairy alongside Rich every single day while they were raising their two boys. Mary Ann sat in on the conversation between Rich and me, and you can hear her chiming in in the background, especially when we get to the parts about money. But from there on, we ended up dipping into the savings of what we had saved, to keep to keep the farm running you know so you know his advice like he said you know he understood that I knew how to to run the business and I was good at it and I I could make money here and have enough money to retire on but it didn't it didn't work out that way you know when you go to the supermarket to pick up a gallon of milk I want you to think about Rich and Marianne there are layers and layers of complexity between the cows in their milking parlor and the jug of milk on the supermarket shelf. But from that point on, what actually happened is the milk price remained level, and but the price of everything we bought kept going up. You know, it got to the point where I was buying seven ton of feed on a load and we were getting three shipments a month and the price of feed the price of grain for the cows kept going up mm -hmm. and then it got to the point where one seven ton shipment of feed was costing more than the three that I was getting originally mm -hmm. so then well okay what are we going to do we have to cut back you know feed more hay and less grain which on the other end milk production dropped. Mm -hmm. So now you don't have enough as much milk to send. 
and the price of the milk is remaining level, so now you cut out on your income. But mm -hmm. on the other end, your expenses kept climbing, and it just got to the point where it's, it's like, what do we do? You know, the bigger farmers kept producing more and more milk, so the supply was out there, but demand was either dropping slowly or remaining constant. So there's more milk, less demand. The price of milk starts dropping, and, and it just snowballed into a thing where you're actually losing money, you know. Working hard, farming dairy every day for decades, and losing money. And from there on, it's just been kind of a struggle. You know, you try to figure out what you can afford to buy. You need tire tractor tires and can't really afford them. Well, maybe we can let it go until next spring or we need this and we need that. And, you know, and it's just, but <laughs> what do you do? You know, <laughs> you don't want to quit because this is what you do, you know. And, and the other problem is, is by that time I was old enough, it's like, what kind of a job, 55 or 60 years old, what kind of a job do I go and get? Do I work for another farmer? I mean, that's not, you know. So we stuck it out until this past summer, and then I decided it was time to sell most of the cows. I wonder if you're thinking about the other dairy farms in the area. Could this possibly be just a problem with Deary's Dairy? Well, in New York State, in 1997, there were 9,286 dairy farms. And by 2012, that number had dropped to 5,427. That's a loss of nearly 42% of the state's dairy farms. But in Sullivan County, the county where Deary's Dairy resides, in the 30 years between 1987 and 2018, dairy farm numbers dropped a precipitous 75% from 112 farms to just 28. And that number continues to drop. I believe there's either 11 or 12 dairy farms left in the county. And I was just mentioning to my wife here the other day, I said, on this road, there was a farm down the road was a dairy farm. This was a dairy farm. The next place up the road was a dairy farm. The next place above that was a dairy farm. And the place partways up the hill, there was a dairy farm. So there's five that were right here on the road. And you take Stump Pond Road up that way, there was four or five. I said there was more dairy farms right here in this little cluster than there is in the whole county now. You know, it's mm -hmm. just... And every road was that way. Every place was a dairy farm, and they milked maybe 15 or 20 cows, and everybody made a living. They weren't getting rich, but they made a living. And now, I mean, I guess we could still be considered a dairy farm because I'm milking cows and selling milk. Rich Deary is still selling milk, a little, locally, direct to consumers right off the farm. There's an on-your-honor jar to put the money in, and a glass front refrigerator with raw milk in it. Deary's is certified to sell raw milk. That is a whole other issue that we won't get into right now. But besides the impact of a failing dairy farm on the farm family, the Deary's, there's a ripple effect. Let's look 
at how the disappearance of small dairy farms affects the rural communities where they were. When I was a kid, there was creameries. There was one in Jeffersonville. There was one in Roscoe. There was one in Youngsville. There was one in Liberty. Every, every sizable town had a creamery where you could take your milk to. Little by little, they... I don't know what really, I guess the thing of it was that there wasn't enough milk coming in anymore or it was costing them too much to have their milk transported from here to New York or whatever the story was. But little by little, they kept going out. Dairyman's League had three or four creameries around and then they decided probably in 1960, early 1960s, they decided to close three or four other creameries and consolidate and put one creamery up in Briscoe, which worked out good. It was kind of a central location, but the sad part of it was, and I, maybe they didn't see this coming either, they built a new creamery in, like I say, the early 60s, and by 1970, everything was bulk milk, no more canned milk, and they had to close down their creamery because it was more cost effective to drive to the farm with a tr uh, bulk truck, pick up the milk and transport it to a milk plant than it was to have everyone bring their milk to the creamery, then put it on the truck and transport it to the, you know, it was a, one less step in handling the milk and less employees for them and so forth. So it just got to the point where they weren't accepting any more canned milk. <clears throat> so either had to put in a bulk tank or quit, quit sending milk one or the other. Moving from small-scale local creameries to having milk pumped directly from a bulk tank on the farm into a truck was an efficiency. It makes sense. New technology comes in and the industry changes. As the industry shifts to integrate this more efficient process of moving milk, smaller farms have more infrastructure costs that are hard to handle, especially when milk prices don't compensate farmers in a way that enables them to continue. What's more, communities suffer. There's a domino effect. But the thing of it is, is that I keep saying, and I'm probably right, is that at one point we had, every town had a small car dealership, every town had a small general store, Every farm had 500 chickens, whatever, and that all gradually, mm -hmm. we have, now we have Walmart and we have big car dealerships, and it's just, I'm saying it's nobody's fault. Mm -mm. What it's going to be is big farms, and us smaller farms are, are not going to exist anymore because you can't. It's just the way economics works, I guess you would say. It's a harsh reality. Smaller farms basically have to go big or go home. Let's hold Rich Deary's experience up against the bigger picture. I invite you to join me as we zoom out, so to speak. We head to Madison, Wisconsin to meet the University of Wisconsin's Director of Dairy Policy Analysis in the College of Agricultural and Life Sciences. Huh. That's a mouthful, but let's just say that Mark Stevenson is a dairy expert, a dairy historian, a walking encyclopedia 
of dairy knowledge. Oh, and his grandfather was a dairy man. So there's family lineage on his side as well. Back in the 1930s, we peaked in the country, in the U.S., with the largest number of dairy farms that we've had. And at that point in time, we had something like 3.6 million dairy farms in this country. Today, we have less than 40,000. So there's been tremendous consolidation, and that's happened over a long period of time, and not always for the same reasons, but <clears throat> there have been some economies of scale that have been sought. I mean, for example, when my grandfather was milking Guernsey cows at their farm, they put milk in cans, and the cans were cooled. I mean, these are big 40-quart metal cans that uh, most of you may be somewhat familiar with, but those were cooled and they were picked up by the milkman. The cans were taken in and, and in the 1950s and early 60s, we had the innovation of the bulk tank on the farms, which is a much larger self-cooled container for the milk to be, go directly from the cow into this bulk tank. It's not touched by human hands at this point in time. And it's much more hygienic, it's much more efficient, it's also much more expensive than a milk can was. And if you ask me when I first started in this industry, what constitutes a small farm, I would have probably said, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 cows, something like that. We saw farms like that. There were quite a few of them. Can hardly find a farm that size today. They've grown in size. Well, you know, at 15 to 20 cows, you can't justify the expense of a bulk tank. You had to have maybe 80 or 100 cows to justify that expense. So the technology has continued to push us toward farms that can afford the capital. And when you've done that, you want to make sure that that capital is fairly intensively used. We heard this from New York dairy farmer Rich Deary, right? The small farmer has trouble keeping up with the necessary expenses on the farm, including new technology. And that's made even more difficult when milk prices are unpredictable. You know, back in the 1930s, actually even predating that, we had quite a lot of price volatility back then. And that's when the government began to step in to help try to regulate prices a little bit and normalize some incomes for dairy producers. Prices used to vary as much as 150% over the course of a year at that point in time. Can you imagine that? What about your business? No matter what you do, could your business withstand that kind of price swing? So we did squash price volatility for a long period of time, but we've kind of backed away from that. And some farmers are really seeing some stress in the price movements that we've had. I'm wondering how one goes about squashing price volatility, aren't you? I mean, I know we all want our markets to work well on their own, but let's find out what the government did back then. Well, the government did it in an interesting way. Back then, most of that price volatility had to do with the seasonality of both production of milk and the demand for dairy products. Those two things have strong seasonal components and they don't mimic one another. They're, they're out of phase. So in the springtime, 
cows were historically moving out onto pastures again and beginning to calve at um, different times of the year that produced a lot of milk in the spring. And our big demand season of the year is kind of Thanksgiving through now Super Bowl. And that's when cows are producing the least amount of milk. Okay, so in the spring, the cows have babies and start producing milk, a lot of it. And we want that milk the most. Think cheesy lasagna, nachos, pizza, hot chocolate in the winter from November through February. So uh, those seasonality components are still there. They're not as strong as they used to be, but our price swings now are not predictable and uh, they used to be much more predictable. What the government did back then was stand willing to buy dairy products off the market in the springtime and then sell them back to the marketplace when the market was short. So storable dairy products like cheese or butter or nonfat dry milk, um, they would purchase in unlimited quantities at as much as anybody wanted to sell to them at the announced prices. And then they would sell them back to the marketplace in the fall. So that really did help to stabilize prices quite a lot. So the government doesn't do this anymore. Let's find out why. Well, the program got abused. You know, as you can imagine, one thing that you can do by being willing to buy as much product as anybody wants to sell to you is uh, that you can lift market prices to levels that is not reflective of consumer demand. And that did happen back in the 1970s and 80s, early 80s. We had a couple of years when the government bought more dairy products than all of Canada, for example, produced in a year. So it was just a, a huge big bill and you know, it was a, a system out of control. And the only way to finally deal with that is just to say, we're not doing that anymore. So how are farmers selling their milk now? They're certainly not going door to door with their milk bottles anymore. But how does the milk get from the farm into the grocery store? Let's find out where it starts. We have milk and we have to find a market for that milk. And we may be a member of a cooperative that's going to do that for us. They will find a place to sell it or we may sell our milk directly. Now, 80% of the milk in this country is marketed through a cooperative. The cooperative might own their own processing facilities. In other words, make cheese or maybe bottle fluid milk, or they may just market the milk for you. So they negotiate on your behalf and would sell the milk to a proprietary cheese plant or butter powder plant or something like that. And that's the way that milk gets marketed. Okay, so a dairy cooperative markets the milk and finds a place for it to be sold to bottle milk, or to make cheese. That sounds pretty efficient and helpful. Then the farmer can keep to the business of making milk. In a future episode of this deep dive into the dairy industry, we are going to get into the business of dairy cooperatives. They are not as simple as they seem. Stay tuned. When I first started this deep dive series into the dairy industry, I wanted your introduction to be a country drive down a winding road to a big red barn with green rolling hills and a herd of picturesque black and white cows grazing lazily. Apparently, I am not alone in that fantasy. 
and I am not alone in finding out that the reality is so much different. Well, I think that, you know, one of the things that's going to come into this becomes individual value judgments that people have. There are a lot of people who like driving out through the countryside if we don't live and work on a farm. And we like seeing little red barns and, you know, black and white cows on green pastures. Um, It's just what our mind says should be there. And that's not the reality of most dairy farms today. Our farms have gotten larger. We handle cows in larger units and pens than we used to. But the care and comfort of cows um, is every bit as much cared for as it ever used to be. It's just done differently. Uh, Dairy farmers know that if my cow is not comfortable, well-fed and well-cared for, I don't get the milk production out of them. And the milk production is, is so much higher than it used to be that animal care is something they look after very closely. Well, I have certainly heard that before. If your cow isn't happy, it is not going to produce good milk. I do think it might be worth diving into cow care and how cows are treated on dairy farms. I mean, if milk production is up per cow, like the agricultural census says it is, are our cows just happier? Or is there more to cow care than we currently understand? We can address this in a future episode. So let me know what you think. Now, back to my original dairy farm fantasy for you. That has been replaced by a more urgent need to follow the money. The prices go up and down. It's impossible to plan. You think farming dairy is about the cows? But for the farmer, it's really more about the finances. Farms have tried to handle this price volatility we've had in recent years by doing two things. One of them is paying down more of their debt so that they have greater balance sheet equity reserves. That's something they can draw on if they need to, you know, in bad times. I need to go in and get a loan that I'll hope to pay back here in the next year or two. And they've also tried to hold more of what we would call working credit or working capital. Those are just near cash, cash or near cash um, reserves. And farms have done that. So they've tried to put themselves into a position to withstand this volatility. But what we've had in this last cycle of prices, our cycles over the last 15 years or so have been roughly three years in length, you know, of up and down. And this time we had, we're going into six years of relatively lower prices. We haven't had much of that big recovery that we keep hoping for. Actually, 2020 was supposed to be that year. We had prices coming up at the end of 2019, and the forecasts and projections were for continued strengthening of those prices all the way through 2020. But then the pandemic showed up, and uh, you know that kind of (laughs) threw everything into a tailspin. So farms have been really quite stressed as far as most of their uh, expenses go. And, you know, when, when you're working 12, 14, 16 hour days and you're still not able to pay all your bills, it's crushing. I mean, it gets to be a, a really difficult thing to just mentally cope with, let alone, you know, fiscally. So it's been a challenge for dairy farms. 
Farmers are stressed. Prices for milk are volatile, and commodities prices in general have been down over 50% since 2012. Farm debt is at a record high. Add to that worsening weather and trade tensions. Oh boy. And if dairy farmers are watching the numbers of dairies closing or going into bankruptcy, which they are, that stress is compounded. No farmer wants to lose their farm, but even more deeply, no farmer wants to be the generation to end their family farming legacy. Losing farms is not, dairy farms, is not headline worthy. I mean, we've been doing that since 1930. It's the rate of exit. I mean, we've been having more attrition than ever before. And not all of that is because you've had a banker call and say, I'm sorry, but I need to have your loan paid up now. You know, you're way behind. A lot of it has just been a stage of life for people, you know, that uh, maybe you're 60 years old or something. And again, as I said, you've been working these 12, 14, 16 hour days and you still aren't able to pay all your bills, do you really want to go into the banker and say, I want a line of credit, you know, to pay these bills? I want to keep milking cows at a loss. And the answer to that at, at that stage of life, maybe no. If I don't have a son or a daughter that's coming back to inherit the farm, it's going to be terminal anyway. Maybe now is just the time to get out and, uh, you know, just stop the bleeding. Do you wonder why some dairy farmers don't get out of farming dairy and start maybe farming something else instead? If a, a crop farmer, you know, normally plants a rotation that includes corn and soybeans, they would probably try to convince themselves about what they think is going to be the better price this year, given the costs of raising the crop. And they could plant relatively more corn and less soybeans or, you know, vice versa. You can't do that with a dairy farm. Those facilities that you have and invested money in, they're good for nothing else except dairy cows, not dairy sheep. You can't, can't put them in the stalls. You can't run them through the milking parlor, but really just dairy cows. So you're kind of committed to doing what you're doing when you've made that investment. Okay. So if you start as a dairy farmer, you've got to stick with dairy. You know, when I was a kid, milk was always on the dinner table. I even had a tall glass of cold skim milk when I got home from soccer practice every day. A lot of folks think that dairy consumption is down now because people are drinking less milk. And now dairy alternatives line our supermarket shelves. Almond milk, soy milk, oat milk. We'll talk about these in another episode of this deep dive series. So stay tuned for that. But I'll let you in on a little secret. Dairy consumption is not down. It's just different. We're eating our dairy right now. We aren't drinking it. So cheese consumption in 1975 was about 14 pounds per person. Today, it's more than 38 pounds per person. We've really increased cheese consumption a lot, and we continue to. A pound of cheese is 10 pounds of milk, you know, so uh, that's only one product. We've had other products. You may remember five, six years ago, we had quite a, a surge of Greek yogurt. That was a sort of a new thing for American consumers. 
and uh, we sold a lot more milk and dairy product through that yogurt. So we continue to find products. Butter has had a whole new flourish over the last 10 years. Ever since the medical community kind of drew a truce, you know, and said, uh, no, I guess that those fats aren't so bad for us. And, you know, consumers said, thank goodness, you know, there's nothing I want more than a little more butter fat in my dairy products. And even in our milk, you know, the, we say the whole category is down and it is, but whole milk sales have been up. It's skim milk sales that are falling off. (laughs) I'm wondering if you might be able to guess which food in particular tipped the scales from liquid milk to cheese. Here's a hint. It became popular in the 1970s. A lot of that rise in consumption was as a result of pizza sales. And that continues, but at a much slower pace. I think we're exploring now more what we used to call and still do specialty cheeses. We're enjoying some of these cheese products just on their own. We don't just want uh, yellow cheddar now, you know, when we think about cheese. So dairy consumption is not down. It's just shifted. But why are prices so bad? Before we let Mark go, let's find out who's controlling and setting the dairy prices that are plaguing our dairy farmers. It's something that we call the federal milk marketing orders. And they're a branch um, uh, of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. We have 10 of those federal milk marketing orders around the country today. They're irregular boundaries, but they're meant to describe the regions where processors competed for beverage or fluid milk sales. When federal orders were conceived and we're trying to solve some of the problems that we had back in the early to mid 1900s here, they were all about beverage milk, fluid milk. So that's what they were focused on. 65% of the volume of the milk they regulated in that earlier time period was beverage milk. It's no longer that much today. It's much less than that. And so that's why fluid milk plants must be regulated if we have an order. And they pay a higher price for milk than other plants. Here's where we get into milk classes. Classes one, two, three, and four. It's something that you should know about. So there's a minimum, we would call it class one price. It's a beverage milk price. And then just for example, class two are soft dairy products like yogurts and creams and cheese or cream cheese, uh, that type of thing. And then hard cheeses are class three and class four are butter and milk powders. So you can imagine that if a farmer is sitting here and there are two or three plants relatively nearby, one of them is a fluid plant, Um, and others a cheese plant and the others a butter powder plant, that farmer is going to want to sell his milk to a fluid plant because they have to pay usually the higher milk price. And in order to stop that from happening, from all farms trying to go to a fluid milk plant, they created what they call pooling in these federal orders, which is to say all of these plants are obligated for these different milk prices, but we're going to try to share and disperse that equally across farms. 
so that there's no big rush for an individual farmer or cooperative to go right after a beverage milk plant. Okay, do you see how this is complicated? There are federal milk marketing orders. There are four classes of dairy. Farmers are competing for liquid milk sales and prices, and now there's pooling. Are you with me? This doesn't get any easier from here, so pay close attention. So the way it works is that a cheese plant that may have paid had to pay a lower price for milk gets to take a draw from this pool of money, usually which is coming from the beverage milk plants, the class one plants, and they take that and add it to their minimum price so that the class one plants are paying this weighted average price to their farmers and a little bit to the pool. And the class three plants are now playing this weighted average price to their farmers with a draw from the pool as well as that minimum price. The pool. It's an equalizer between the higher prices of liquid milk and the lower prices for produced cheeses. Are you following along? We'll get into a lot more milk math in a future episode. Do you remember back in middle school when you were doing all that math and you wondered, right, why am I doing this? Well, if you're a dairy farmer, math is at the heart of everything. How do you figure out who gets what and what's fair? Well, you know, if you've got consumers at one end of a marketing chain and farmers at the other, and you want this price to go up, but not this one, then it's got to take place somewhere in the middle. So who are you going to um, reduce? Is it going to be the farm milk hauler? You know, the, the guy that's picking the milk up and taking it to the plant, he's part of that chain. Is it going to be the plant itself, you know, that's manufacturing the product? Is it going to be the, the co-packer who is, you know, making shreds and putting it in bags and things out of the cheese that you're buying? Is it going to be the distributor that's moving that through the retail stores? I mean, it's got to come out of somewhere. So, you know, you tell me who's, who's making too much money. I don't have an answer for that. I mean, you tell me. The dairy industry has been producing as much milk as the marketing chain wants for a long period of time. Not every farm can live at the kind of prices that are being generated by that. But, you know, until the marketing chain starts to get stifled, you know, by not enough milk being produced, that price is probably not going to be a lot higher. This is a question that I've talked to a lot of dairy farmers about. What if dairy farmers stop producing as much milk as they do? Then prices would go up, and they would get paid more for the milk that they do produce. And yet, dairy farmers continue to produce or overproduce milk. So we go back to Economics 101, Supply and Demand. When the supply is higher than the demand, the prices are low. I asked our expert, Mark Stevenson, what he thought needed to happen in order to fix the dairy industry's problems. The federal milk marketing orders have been in place for a long period of time. They've evolved and grown up over time, but I think we've got some real changes that need to be made in these federal orders. They can't be made quickly and simply. I think they have to have a long hearing process and 
try to think through the entire system again. One of the things we've tended to do is to focus on what's today's problem? What's the one little thing that we think is an issue and let's go in and fix that? Well, if you change that, that may have implications for the broader system. You need to think about these changes that are much more complete and try to re-justify what you're doing in the first place. So that's not gonna be an easy thing to do, but I think it's gonna be a necessary thing to do. The not so easy part is that there would be a very extended hearing where all of the players would get to weigh in on what the problems are and what the solutions are. You can imagine how complicated that would be. And while complicated, Mark Stevenson feels like it's really necessary. And here's what he would start with. I would start with, we need to think about price discovery. In other words, how do we determine that monthly value for milk that we have right now? It's banging around like crazy. Do those prices have to move that month in a given month, you know, to signal what the market wants? Is this too much milk or not quite enough? You know, <laughs> we, we can do that without $10 changes in milk. It doesn't have to go as low as it goes. You'd have to give up some of those real high points, you know, to get there. But you know, a lot of people increasingly are willing to have that discussion now that weren't a few years ago. And then, of course, you have to think a little bit in a federal order, not just about price discovery, but how do we share that income? These are the big questions. Who gets what in this big dairy pie? What is fair? How can it be more stable? And what are the consequences if these big, complicated issues are not addressed? We are losing small family dairy farms in droves. And now you understand what that means to family, to the landscape, to the rural towns, and their economies. You also understand the economies of scale of a new, more modern dairy system. Is there a way for big dairies and small dairies to coexist within this industry? And even if we accept that small farms will die out, and bigger farms will take over. With the off-kilter supply and demand, will that kill them too? How long can you continue to farm a product without making money on it? Is the dairy industry dying a slow death? I know that sounds extreme, but how long can this complicated system, with so many farms dying off, be considered vibrant and thriving? You tell me. This is not the Dairy 101 episode I imagined for you. It is so much more. It is complicated and fascinating and it's not over. We will meet more dairy farmers. We will dive deep into the land of milk cooperatives, into the importance of financial planning and loans. We will dissect the milk math pie. We'll talk about cows and how they live as dairy producers. We'll talk about milk alternatives and international trade and how new dairy farmers are entering the industry when others are going out. There's so much to think about every time you buy a gallon of milk or a slice of cheese. Now that you've seen the tip of the iceberg, let me know what questions you have and we'll get on it. Thanks for joining me in this first deep dive episode about dairy. I'm your host, Farm Girl, and this is Talk Farm to Me.